Welcome to this week's episode of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. Uh, we're going to be looking at the chapter entitled Freedom on page 179. And since we're talking about Braveheart in the introduction to this chapter, that's why my background is the William Wallace swore, sword uh, from that movie. Uh, I'm not going to read the, the whole introduction I've got laid out there. I uh, just want to read the last two paragraphs. Uh, one soldier admits to William Wallace fight against that, the huge British army. No. Soldiers shout in agreement, we will run and we will live. Wallace challenges, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. So, Peter, until 2020, would any of us have believed that freedom-loving people like us in America would so willingly have given up our freedoms? Ah. <laughs> uh... I, I think it's very easy to underestimate or rather to overestimate um, the how loud we are about what we think our freedoms are and how little we do about it. Um, I just had this conversation in our Bible class where I said, you know, pietism or about the spiritual movement of pietism and pious and um, and and I think politically you know there is there's a strain of pietism where people who like freedom and who you know read the constitution who have read about freedom who might know one of the freedoms of the uh the bill of rights um a lot about um but all it is is bravado and like i'll know it when it comes and then i'll i'll do it when the day comes but until then until then i'm just gonna go along with everything uh, yeah and it's never it's never advocating for freedom in a in a good way right you know, we talked about this in our bible study this morning on the same chapter you know just to think about i asked the question what kind of freedoms did we willingly forfeit? And you would think it's freedom-loving nations like America, France, Britain, Australia, and yet those were some of the worst countries with removing freedoms, freedoms like a freedom of speech, freedom of mobility, the freedom to work, the, the freedom to choose whether you're going to be vaccinated or not the freedom to worship, the freedom to gather, whether it's in a restaurant or a workplace, a public park, a hospital, a funeral, uh, all of these freedoms that we so willingly gave up. Uh, and, and that was shocking to me. Yeah, and and in in one respect it was shocking, um, and at least for me, in in another respect it was like, well, that's kind of what we expected, um, you know, not not to that degree, but um, but I've seen people just bend over backward because we we like the idea of authority, and um, and if I can obey authority and I get the social points for my obedience. Um, and I'm just giving up a little bit of this or a little bit of, of that particular thing. And we rationalize it away. 
um, that I don't think we love freedom as much as freedom as it is. I think we love the idea of freedom, which is just the idea that I get to do what I want. And uh, when you're confronted with a uh, a superior force or um, or some government official who puts on, then it's like, oh, I'll do that because all of a sudden that's what I want to do. Yeah, and it can be uh, a superior force or it could just be guilt because they're saying this is for the good of everyone else. And we'll get to that in a moment because they also quote, it, it is kind of interesting when, and I looked at it this way, of I followed up the quote from William Wallace in Braveheart. The very next quote is from Barbie in Toy Story 3. Uh, but she says, authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. So, Peter, why is it important to remember that God's servant of the government is to be the protector of its citizens, not the custodian? of its citizens. Yeah. And that, that gets into, um, the basic political philosophy behind, you know, where, where our constitution came from and the way that our government is set up, um, that when we're, we're not talking about just government in a vacuum, we're talking about government here in, in this country, um, according to the way that it is constituted. And so in, in that respect, um, that our constitution begins with the, the people and giving their consent to this government and the people then working together to uh, create the constitution rights of the people. Um, it's a, it's a very, you know, strong 18th century idea, um, uh, the kind of the social contract where the people give their consent and then they will submit to the government. Um, but when we, when we outsource, when we outsource our responsibility to the government and say that they are now the custodian of all this, um, as a Christian, that's giving up the stewardship of the things that are specifically your responsibility. It would be very easy to say, you know, here's, here's the easy way. Um, the government will, will pay for our, the tuition to send my child to a private school. Uh, the government will, will, has already written it in my property taxes that I, and send my child there and uh and then i get you know basically daycare for um for eight nine hours a day for uh, all their youth and um the government is allowed to take custody of these children for the purpose of saying don't worry we'll take care of it and not that this is always the case but it definitely opens the door to um to ignoring our specific responsibilities as parents and I'm sure you could, you know, think of the other vocations, the other estates in life that are related to that and, uh, and kind of the same thing where the church is told, well, you need to close, you can't gather in groups, you can't function as a church. And, uh, and if we love the idea of obeying authority, then we're like, oh, look, the church has been deployed. No, the church should have been being the church all along. And, um, and don't, don't share pictures of your empty sanctuaries when you should be gathering for worship. Yep. The, the government is not the custody, the custodian of, um, of the kingdom of Christ. Yeah. And you use the word stewardship. Uh, I would use the word vocation. That this is our vocation as citizens. When I asked this question in Bible study this morning, one of the ladies astutely said, God did not create us to be robots uh, because if we just go along 
as the government is our custodian, there's no love. There's no forgiveness. We're just doing what we're told. And then I think of it this way, and this is probably why some pastors don't really care for this book, because I'm calling out Christian citizens, but also pastors, because I believe we have slowly transitioned to consider the government to be over the citizens rather than the government serving citizens. And you and I know this because we've talked about this with the uh, youth confirmation class that you, I think we both use from Northwestern Publishing House. And I just covered this on in class on Tuesday, studying the fourth commandment. And it talks about the role of the government and it's that we are to serve the government. <laughs> you and I change the answers. Uh, they're a lot longer than the original answers. And I told them, you don't have to write all of this down. This is more of a reminder to me. But I said, the government serves us. That's what Romans 13 says. And and I bring that up here because someone who, another pastor, he really liked the book, but he was surprised that it didn't start with chapter uh, or this chapter on freedom. He was surprised that I started with Romans 13. Well, I have to establish Romans 13. The government is our servant. It's God's servant so that we understand where the freedom comes from. It's not from the government. It's from God who gives us these freedoms. Uh, I quote C.S. Lewis. I want to read the longer quote, but then I just want to come back to the first sentence. This is on the bottom of page 181. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. <clears throat> this very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states, which we may not regard as disease, is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will. To be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. So I ask you, Peter, based on that quote, what do you learn from yeah. C.S. Lewis's quote, especially that first line, of all oh, yeah. tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive? You're just reading through that. And um, and what you really understand is no matter, no matter the government, because um, every government is going to be distorted just in a different way. Um, so let's not just uh, go black hat, white hat with, uh, oh, the communists are bad and America is good but that every government is oppressive in its own way. And the tool they have is manipulating the conscience. Um, and so if they automatically paint themselves as, um, as the ones who are being your helper, I'm here for your good, um, then that puts them in the position of being good. And if they are good, then therefore everybody you know, who has no you know, no particular insight, hasn't given a whole lot of thought to this, doesn't have an informed conscience from scripture, and only has their natural reason to guide what is actually good and not good, and what is my responsibility, and then everybody else goes along with it. And if 
if they have already chosen the high ground of the moral high ground of I'm doing what is good for you, then the only way to um, oppose that and say, well, I don't need that, first of all, and that second of all, isn't for my good specifically, it automatically puts you in the defensive position um, in, in the in the argument, in the debate, in uh, in society. And um, and then the power of society is on the side of good, because that's the instant rhetoric um, that this is a good thing. They're doing it for your good. And if you are doing something different, then you are other. You are less. Um, you are you are the stranger. You are the anomaly, and um, and it's the idea of what what is it called? I think uh, in the UK, maybe in Canada too, uh, the tall poppy syndrome, um, or like uh, crabs in the bucket is uh, the idea from the Philippines and um, Indonesia, Australia, and the idea there is that the, the tall poppy is the one that gets cut down um and that if you have enough crabs in a bucket you don't need a lid on the bucket if you're you're catching crabs um you just put them in the bucket and then they will pull each other down back into the bucket if one tries climbing out it's going to pull it back down fantastic song by chaos gotta look them up on youtube <laughs> crabs in a bucket um that'll get your uh, get your morning off to a good start but yeah I, th I think that's that's kind of the the idea here is manipulating the conscience on a society-wide level in order to enforce um the idea that their oppression is inherently better than the individual taking responsibility for their own uh god-given responsibilities yeah and and there i just thought of this quote and i could have fit it in the book here of uh, what Ronald Reagan said when he was president, the nine most terrifying words in the English language, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I think that fits in with what C.S. Lewis is saying. But I was thinking of this. I don't know, Peter, if you've ever read the uh, DC Comics graphic novels or seen the cartoon movie adaptation or the, I think it's most popular as a video game called the Injustice League. Uh, what it is, the, the premise is that, you know, Superman and Batman don't kill. Even the Joker, as awful as he is, they won't kill the Joker. Well, the Joker sets up a scenario where uh, Lois Lane, uh, Superman's wife, is killed by the Joker, and it drives Superman insane. So much so in his anger and grief that he puts his fist through the Joker obviously killing him and then superman in a, <clears throat> the goal to enforce peace at any cost and he becomes like the ruler of the world and he has other superheroes on his side like wonder woman and the whole idea is what c.s lewis is saying here he is going to enforce peace making sure that everything is good but then there's no freedom and then you've got Batman leading other superheroes against Superman and Wonder Woman and so forth, that even though there's going to be evil, there's going to be freedom. And I just think that's an interesting concept of Superman uh, is trying to enforce good. And uh, my associate, Pastor Klusmeyer, mentioned it in Bible study this morning before I used the Superman uh, reference. He talked about that's how every nation in in the world the chinese communist government the communist government even hitler and so forth they all said we are doing this for the good of the people and then they did 
atrocious evils. Mm-hmm. And and even if hypothetically they were able to say this is the morally and ethically correct thing to do, and even if they had the uh, perfect perception to understand what is morally and ethically correct in every circumstance, um, mere outward obedience without without the heart, um, it it lasts for a while. It may be of some worldly benefit, but it is of no of no spiritual benefit. But it, it, it's, again, manipulation of the conscience where they want to say, well, here's the standard. And if you just live up to this, then you are good. And then you are off the hook. And you don't, if you live up to the standard of um, leading an active, healthy lifestyle, and, um, and we've got a yeah, good, good example from Canada, I suppose. Um, when I first moved to Canada, you know, walking around the grocery store was a little bit different. Um, First of all, everything has both English and French on it, which works really well because English is, it just works really well on, on labels and such for reading it. But I was looking around and it was very notable how much um, American junk food wasn't there. Not that I was especially interested in it, but it was, it was, it was noteworthy. And, um, and my hypothesis about it was basically the idea that I am responsible for taking care of myself because if I eat poor food, it's going to impact my health. And my neighbor is paying for my health care. And so I want to live the best way that I can so that my neighbor doesn't have to pay for for my heart attack and my stroke and all of my deleterious health effects. Um, And what that is, it looks on the surface like it's good, but it totally eviscerates um, moral consciousness and it totally exhausts moral willpower. Um, because now I, I, you drive into Canada. I love this part. Um, you cross over in Detroit, you, you get through Detroit. Detroit is a beautiful city and it's going to be a beautiful city for a long time. Um, I will, I will die on that hill. Um, but you cross over from Detroit into Windsor and you start seeing all these road signs, like every half a mile, you know, um, don't drive if you're tired, you know, take a break. If you're tired, don't drive drunk, don't drive high. Here's the legal limit of 0.03. Um, all these regulations and the purpose is to totally drain, um, make people exhausted on a moral level of all the things that I have to do. And if I want to get off the hook from, from all the external inputs against, you know, my obligations to society, then I can relieve myself of that by paying attention to the other guy. And if I tell him what he should or shouldn't, not do, then I can bring some relief to myself that I have finally lived up to the standard. And I think in whether we're talking communism, fascism, or um, Americanism, whatever our system happens to be, who knows these days, um, it's it's a similar thing, where they will use the conscience, and, um, and the rules and regulations will set up a social standard, a social expectation, and then say, as long as you live up to it, then you are okay. And I don't think it's, um, it's not a coincidence that where you see the multiplication of laws and, and policies and regulations, that the vitality of the church just goes, unless they're willing to speak up. Yeah. And then we'll look, look at that in the next one. But yeah, just think of governments, again, thinking they're doing it for the best. And so what are they going to do? They're going to uh, really find uh, smoking and so forth. And then, you know, next it's vaping. But you even have in in places like New York, 
where they're limiting how much, uh, you know, the big size of soda you can get. And again, they can say, well, this is for your benefit so that you're not having the diabetes and heart disease and so forth uh, or cancer from uh, the smoking. And But what they're doing, though, is they're taking away freedoms. And I mentioned this a little bit last week and I'll touch on it some more here. I had just finished listening to and then watching uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I think it's God's providence that I finished it to be able to talk about here because I think the whole premise of that book and then the the movie and then I watched the extras on the movie was that <clears throat> the whole purpose with uh, Randall McMurphy, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, is he's in this place where everything is regimented and so forth. And Nurse Ratchet was interesting is she was supposed to be played where – the actress who plays her plays her like she's a good person. She's believing she's doing good. But in reality, she's removing all the freedoms and she's actually a very evil person. This is exactly what we're talking about here. And then when the climax of the book and movie, Randall brings in some prostitutes, brings in alcohol and so forth. There's chaos all night long, all morning long. Uh and he's going to escape with Chief, this guy that's like seven foot tall American Indian. And he doesn't escape. And then the end of the movie, Randall McMurphy is lobotomized. You know, mm. and the key though is now he's peaceful. And that's what a, the government that is the beast out of the sea really wants from us as custodians. They just want peace. And to do that, they will remove freedoms mm -hmm. and and i think together with that um in practical application this is where um the reason you know having having more laws and more policies or taking away freedoms even even if it's a good thing you know we don't need to drink half a gallon of soda with your big mac you know we could probably all agree on that that is a good thing but when there's the rule the external thing that takes away my personal responsibility that takes away my thinking and then instead of me saying oh i should maybe i'll have a water <laughs> instead then it's oh i'll just i'll just do whatever they say because now what's the next thing that i i need to do um because it it lets me off the hook of my own personal moral responsibility um as well as the responsibility of making my own ethical choices that that are my responsibility even if somebody says that um, i'm making the wrong choice okay then i'll i'll make the wrong choice and i will bear the repercussions of that choice and hopefully um that's in a sense that is god's external tool of the law his foreign work where you you come slamming up against um a brick wall you know i did the wrong thing and now i have to own up to what i did you're dealing with guilt you're dealing with shame you're dealing with a moral a moral consciousness that gets deadened through the um, multiplication of of external rules laws and policies so in our bible say this morning uh, one of the ladies mentioned this quote from a movie i wasn't able to find it when i was googling it maybe one of our listeners can do it because maybe she didn't quote it exactly but it's she said it was a christopher lloyd character in some camp movie and it was that even smart people have the constitutional right to do dumb things you know, well that was a pretty applicable quote here um and 
in the middle of page 182, I call out leaders, but I hear especially pastors for going along with this. Uh, I say those within the media, businesses, universities, and even churches did not seem to stop to ask whether the suspension of civil civil liberties was right, justified, or necessary. These are leaders who have abdicated their role as the moral compass of public opinion. Not only have they abdicated that role, in many cases they have sided with government and bureaucracy in promoting the invasion into private lives and the suspension of civil liberties. Uh, in there, think of uh, Thomas Jefferson. I quote him at the end. Uh, he says, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And isn't it interesting that Thomas Jefferson says that at the beginning of our nation, knowing what's going to happen and where we are several hundred years later, that yes, our government is taking away our freedoms. I think uh, Benjamin Franklin had a, had a similar quotation that those who would give up freedom in order to secure uh, safety deserve neither safety nor freedom. Safety yeah. or security, something like that, and it's uh, it's a similar idea that um, that an organization is not going to have the the nuanced understanding and the personal responsibility of of individuals. Um, if we if we just get all of the personal responsibility and we outsource it, um, then it just becomes a competition of of living up to uh, the rules. Um, and <laughs> if you've ever read Animal Farm, the rules on the barn can change, and it doesn't take too much. Um, you know, we we get deceived into thinking. Um, same as uh, Benjamin Disraeli, who came back after his meeting with Adolf Hitler, and he's like, I've secured peace for our time. And that's like, what, 1938 or 1939. And that lasted all of uh, a couple months, maybe. Um, The idea that if we just give in, and if we just go along with it, then we are we can tell ourselves we're doing the right thing. And it's also going to be beneficial when sometimes it is neither the right thing nor beneficial. So with that, then, Peter, should Christians willingly hand over their freedoms or should they zealously guard those freedoms? That's a fantastic question. Um, kind of turns on the concept of freedom. As a, as a Christian, I am, um, I am the, the bondsman of Jesus Christ, that I want to, in all that I am, I want to have my confession in word and deed be something that that confesses my faith in Jesus, um, the faith that we all share. Um, And so when we're talking about Christian freedom, um, I will give up my freedom for a time if it if the use of my freedom would be a stumbling block. Um, But that is a different understanding from when when we're talking about civic freedom and secular freedom when we're talking about, um, you know, like governmental freedom. Uh, that's where Christians have a responsibility to stand up for their freedoms um, because the freedom that is preserved to us, like in the Constitution, is there for the good of the citizens. And it's part of the, the contract that constituted, literally constituted our nation. And we shouldn't import this, this Christian idea of I'm going to give up my freedom in service to others. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the Christian citizen should say, well, 
even if it isn't affecting me personally and individually right now, I have a responsibility to my fellow citizen to stand up when this particular freedom is being infringed upon. And that's where, you know, you've probably heard it like five times already. Um, even, even the basics, even the basics of, if you read the preamble to the constitution and, and the first amendment, uh, the first of the 10 bill of rights, um, and look at it, you know, I, I asked in Bible class one time, I think I probably told the story, like, what is the first amendment? There are five freedoms in the first amendment and, uh, and crickets and somebody's like uh, the right to keep and bear arms no that's the second if we don't know these things how are we going to um be a good citizen good citizenship re requires um knowing these things then holding the government to it you know one of the things that i really learned as i was writing this chapter is to think of our freedoms as possessions. So something that we can hold on to, much like a home or property, vehicle or stuff. And just like the government cannot claim our property or home through eminent domain, they can't claim our freedoms in the I same got, way. I got something for you on yeah. that. <laughs> they can. Well, they can. I mean, yeah, Citizens United, eminent domain. Um, I think that was, I want to say 2008. I'd have to go back and look at that. But go ahead. Well, <laughs> it's frustrating. I get it. There, I liken it to, I, since I was sick a week and a half ago, and I was trying to find something to watch, I finished binge watching some, some comedy show, uh, Parks and Rec. And so I started watching Yellowstone. And I brought it up in Bible study today, and afterwards, one of the guys said, I can't believe two of the people that I love most, me and then someone someone else who's in Bible study, I can't believe the people I love and respect the most, they watch that show. So, yeah, <laughs> it's not great. There's nothing really redeeming about it. But anyhow, in that show, Yellowstone, uh, you've got the main character, John Dutton, and he, where I am in season three, is he's trying to protect his Yellowstone ranch from this big conglomerate of people owning this business. And they want to put in a resort, a ski resort in Montana, and then bring in an airport. And they're putting pressure on the governor to seize uh, John Dutton's Yellowstone ranch for by eminent domain. They said, well, willing to pay, you know, 10,000 acre. So they get $5 million, but he doesn't want it. You know, he doesn't want the money. He wants the property as a legacy to pass on to his children. And that's the key is mm -hmm. that these are rights that come to us from God and not the government. And there I quote uh, the Declaration of Independence on page 183, just to make you proud, Peter. We <laughs> hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there I say, if the government can suspend its citizens' rights anytime it deems necessary, then they're not rights. Then they're possess then they are permissions. Yes. And uh and I had a footnote somewhere in there um earlier, I think earlier in the book that that talked about um the difference between the American Bill of Rights and the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Privileges, um, where they, the Canadian Charter basically says that we grant these privileges to the people, but those privileges can be suspended at, uh, when, when, we, when we deem fit. 
Well, that's that's important that you bring that up because was it just a week or two ago, one of the prime ministers in Canada said in a speech talking about transgenderism that uh, there are no parental rights in Canada. He said those exact words. And that would make sense because they're not rights in Canada. They're privileges. Yep. And um, and it takes a village to raise a child. And don't worry, we'll take care of it for you. We'll make sure that we've got $10 daycare for the entire nation, no matter how much it costs. And we'll provide breakfast and lunch and even after school care and supper if they need it at the school. And all it is is letting parents off the hook. And nothing good happens when the one with responsibility is let off the hook. Back to the eminent domain thing, just yeah. to interrupt there. It was the uh, 2005 decision, Kilo versus City of New London. Um, if you look that up on Wikipedia. I, I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, 2005. I was a little bit off there. Citizens okay. United had to do with campaign finance reform, which is an entirely different wormhole. But uh, yeah, Kilo versus City of New London, 2005. That uh, eminent domain where the Supreme Court basically said on a federal level, um, that eminent domain is permissible. Yeah. And there may be reasons to do this again for the good of the population but then you're hurting individuals and so you got to be very careful about this where uh, the government cannot suspend rights it's actually illegal for it to do so just like you know when you think of the seventh ninth and tenth commandments you and i as christian citizens are called to protect the property and means of income of our next door neighbor of our family members and so forth. And when the government comes in and tries to take away our possessions, our property and our freedoms, then we are called on by God in those three commandments to resist the government because uh, it's not legal what they did during COVID to suspend those rights of you know, free speech, uh, freedom to gather, freedom to worship, and so forth. They suspended our rights for the good of everyone. That's what they said, but they actually don't have the right to do so. That, that's exactly correct. And, and even when we get down to the nitty gritty of the First Amendment uh, freedom of religion and the right of freedom of assembly, um, if they declared martial law and everything is shut down and the law is applied equally across the board, then then everything can be closed. But if you start carving out, you know, even even one exception, then that opens the door to say, well, they don't have a constitutional right to be operating their their 7-Eleven or their Costco or their their liquor store, or whatever you name it. Um, but we do have a constitutional right to worship. So even if even if people are uncomfortable gathering together, I'm going to show up, we're going to have the doors open and we're going to have worship service available um, because this is something that we need to do in order. Not that I you know, want to be a test case, you know, who wants to be in the news as, a, <laughs> you know, where is the Alliance Defending Freedom going to are they going to come through for that on you uh, for you on, the, on that topic? Um, but there is the responsibility that we have to be informed about what our rights actually are and to be more thoughtful, not just say, well, um, you know, the governor decreed this, whether he has the right to or not. And so therefore we're gonna take the easy path, but rather to say, well, I have a responsibility to my fellow citizens and to uh, my children 
that we exercise these freedoms because otherwise it's just a freedom on paper. You know, I, right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then with that, uh, I quote Ronald Reagan on page 184, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. We are called upon to protect our freedoms. And there, I, I think about my grandfather, my grandpa Parcham, that we I didn't learn this until the wake uh, the day before his funeral, uh, I knew he had been in the army. I saw the picture of him when he was a young soldier, but you know he was like many of that greatest generation, didn't talk about it at all. And I learned that he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And then I just learned from my aunt when I was texting her this week to ask her about it. She said, yeah, he was in a tank that got hit and the guy next to him was killed in the tank. Uh, so my grandfather, like so many others, they fought and bled. Some died to protect and provide our freedoms. And for us to just willy-nilly give over our freedoms that these people died for is to treat this frivolously. And then to think of it scripturally, think of Esau. How do we teach the story of Esau with his birthright? You know, what does he do? He trades it for a bowl of lentil soup. And that's what we do with our freedoms here. Take our freedom uh, about going to work, going to worship, whatever it was, just and then uh, you hand us some some free COVID money. You give us access to we can stream our Hulu. We can eat our hot pockets. We can uh, just hang out at home. And and I mentioned this in Bible study a while ago. I said this would not have happened a hundred years ago. It probably would even have happened twenty to thirty years ago when we didn't have the internet and we weren't so easily placated. But because we could just have food delivered to us because we could have anything on our phone and Wi-Fi and the uh, streaming services. We were, uh, we were placated. You would know if you were the one that brought it up from that book. Um, oh, the, the drug that, that um, people were oh, giving out. Soma. Yeah. yeah. In uh, brave new world. Yeah. You were Soma. the one that referenced that in the, in, yeah. in this book. That's what we were, we were giving Soma this wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago because there was nothing to do. You had to get out and do stuff, but because everything had been set up, so now we're placated. Uh, but no, we need to, the whole point is we need to be protecting these freedoms, like Reagan said, so we can hand those freedoms on to our children. Other, otherwise, we're just going to tell them stories about what it once was like. Yeah, and, and I guess the interesting part for me, um, like – as I've been doing visits today, listening to, uh, I pulled up like three or four different episodes from Pastor John Hine um, on the RWJ Daily podcast. And uh, I, whenever I find audio from him, I, I put on the podcast. And um, what would be interesting for me when you're saying that this wouldn't have happened, you know, 50 years ago or even even 30 years ago, is that that culturally, 50 years ago um, was and was the kind of cultural peak of cultural Christianity in America. And 30 years ago was the was the peak of our uh, of our little church body um, that 
the question that I've got is what's the relationship between your Christian faith, the Christian faith that we all share, and a sense of individual responsibility? And, um, and that, and I would propose that Christianity is, I mean, obviously, yes, it is um, individualized. It is a, it is a personal faith, but it is not a private faith that what Jesus did for all people applies to you individually and personally, and that we, we go before our Lord. I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, individual, personal, but it isn't private where you just get to pick and choose what you want to believe. Um, and, and so coming from the direction of um, uh, some sense of a cultural Christianity, bringing along with it the sense of individual responsibility and vocation and stewardship um, versus the other side where the, the government comes at it from the, the point of the law to say we are going to just democratize all of this we are going to socialize all of this where the the responsibility is on all of us to make sure that we don't kill grandma um and i would say from from what i've seen and i think there's good examples in uh, the the 20th century is that when you have that um non-individualizing of responsibility that fall that plays right into the sinful flesh that says i am off the hook i have no need of a savior i have no personal responsibility because this is all of it all of us and we're all in it together and even to the point where i will give up my own flesh and blood because it takes a village and i'm tired and uh, <laughs> and and, and that, that was kind of the interesting thing that when you look at the the messaging um whether it was related to covid or or other um other societies in the 20th century, the messaging is, we are doing this for your good. And the, this is the rule for you to follow. And that it rises when that, that sort of idea really rises when the idea of Christianity, Christian individual responsibility is, uh, is in the decline. Yeah. And for us to think of in our Lutheran worship, uh, that individual versus corporate worship, just think of the creeds. That one Sunday, we will say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father. And then the next week, we say the Nicene Creed, we believe in God the Father. It's you know, One is a, a personal faith, the Apostles' Creed, but then the other one is corporately, we believe this. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. it is what we do individually but then also what we do corporately, uh, both as, citizen, as citizens also. And then that kind of leads to the last question we can talk about today, Peter, is how does the beast out of the sea use fear to turn people away from the security of God? Fantastic question. It, um, it proposes an answer to fear. And it says fear is only limited to your life here. So you need to be fearful for your life and uh, don't worry, we will take care of your life. Um, it, there, there, I think there's two elements there where it, it compresses the fear where we ought to have a fear of facing the one who could throw both body and soul into hell. And we ought to have a, a fear of death as the understanding that death is the payment for sin. And that is turned around into um, we will take care of you and we will give you and we will make it socially acceptable for you to decide when you when and how you make your exit from this world, um, which is where you see the, the progression of um, uh, curtailing both ends of life. 
whether I am, you know, there's abortion for the sake of the, the freedom of the mother to do whatever it is that she wants to do instead. And also the freedom of those to travel to a different country or just call the maid if you live in Canada, the medical assistance in dying and, and that those deaths aren't classified as suicides in their statistics. There's lies, damn lies and statistics, but those deaths are classified as, um, as anything else, not labeled as a suicide. And so the beast out of the sea says, we will make it so that you don't have to be afraid ever. And then we will make it so that the one thing you should be most afraid of that is unavoidable death besides taxes. The one thing that is unavoidable as the thump of God's law, we will make it now socially acceptable for you to just push the button whenever you want and you can be in control. Did God really say, no, he didn't. We get to say, and then you get to say. <laughs> yeah. And, and there I say that we have, again, abdicated our roles by giving things over to the government they don't need to have. Uh, we've given over education. That's our parental role. And what do we be, we've done? We've said, uh, here are our kids, three, four, five years old. You train them all the way up from uh, that little age all the way up to the public university. We've abdicated our role as taking care of our elderly, our sick, of providing for the poor, uh, about immigrants, medicine, healthcare, everything. We've just said, here, government, here's an issue. Here's some kind of problem. You take care of it. And what does it do then is we see this uh, in the fulfillment of Revelation 13, that the government takes more and more control. And then they, it isn't to stay there. It then leads people to worship the beast out of the earth which is the pagan church. And so now you can see our government is focusing people on worshiping climate change. It's the same old religion of, say, the Canaanites that uh, the Israelites were fighting against. It, they are uh, forcing people, encouraging them at least with abortion. It's the same religion of Molech that the Canaanites were dealing with, of killing the unborn or killing their children and sacrificing to them to this God. Uh, it is getting people to worship their self and sexuality. It's the same religion of Baal and Asherah, these same gods of the pagan church from 3,000, 4,000 years ago. It's the same thing that we're seeing in our own nation as the government takes more and more control and they're not morally neutral, they then are forcing people to worship a different beast, the beast out of the earth. And then those two beasts together are getting people to worship the great dragon of the devil. And, and at every point where natural law would intervene or the conscience would intervene, um, we, we, we give it a sanitization and say, well, it's medical care. Um, you know, if we, if you, you're feeling uncomfortable in your own skin, it's not just, it's not because of your conscience, it's because you're actually a girl inside. And even though you were born as a boy, um, that's where natural law would intervene. And you would have to confront the reality that I feel uncomfortable and I don't know why. And, uh, and the conscience, um, even with, um, you know, assistance in dying, 
um, assisted suicide, and they'll they'll give it a new name that that sounds uh, pleasant and flowery, um, that you did it your way, right? Um, even with that, they give it the the sanitizing thing of well, it's science and it's healthcare, and and it's always this promise that you get to decide your own fate. And it's a delusion that people believe until it's until it's too late. Yeah, and and that delusion, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and talking about delusion, and that leads into this, it was brought up in Bible study this morning too, that again, think of the way language is changed. And I don't know exactly which state this is, but it's coming in one state, it'll be reaching the others and then federally, that now they are defining child abuse as you refuse to allow your child to have an abortion you refuse to allow your child to have what they term, again, talking about changing of terms, of uh, medically assisted, you know, gender affirming care, which we know is, you know, a sex change, child abuse. That's real child abuse. Uh, killing a child through abortion is real child abuse. But our government is changing those terms to make to make it so now a good uh, conservative Christian parent who refuses to go along with the sins of the flesh and the sins of the world, that is termed child abuse. Uh, we'll wrap it up here, mm -hmm. but I want to wrap and, it up. And with that, that started, uh, just one last, one last yeah. little bit, that that started, um, at least on the gender side, um, in the modern era, back in about 2009, 2008, uh, when President Obama changed Title IX, which was to protect women's sports, um, changed the terminology in Title IX from... Uh, female sex to female gender and and that just opened that was one way that opened the doors to say well your gender doesn't have to match up with your body that the, your gender is fluid and and it, it's it's just gnosticism reborn that says who i am inside may or may not match up with who i am outside and the christian church has had an answer to that for for ages <laughs> And so we, we shouldn't be shy about these things. Yeah. So I'll wrap it up with two quotes on page 185. One is from uh, Senator Amidala from Star Wars. Uh, she says, so this is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. And I think we see that in our nation with the very first question I asked about, could you, could you see that freedom-loving people like Americans would so easily give up our freedoms? Yeah, we did with thunderous applause. And the last quote I'll end with is from, again, Ronald Reagan, who said it, well, government's first duty is to protect the people, not run their lives. And it is part of our vocation to remind the government of what it is and what is their duty and also what is not their duty. So we'll wrap it up here. We look forward to seeing all of you, Lord willing, next week as we continue on this chapter on freedom.